Hello and welcome to Everything End of Life with me, Jason Cottrell, and guests. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of being of talking to my wife. We do it all the time, but, uh, but this is specifically about the podcast. So I want to see, how do you think the podcast is going, Debbie? I think it seems to be going really well. I mean, there's a variety there, something for everyone, and you can dip in and out as you like. Quite good. Yeah, I think my uh, the first one was with Becky Ricks, and that was good. People are saying that they found that very useful because uh, very reassuring because we know now what it actually looks like that last four weeks at the end of life, so roughly. Uh, and she was such a very good person to interview, very easy yeah. to talk to. And having just lost my dad earlier this year, it's actually, um, it highlights how much you don't know until you're kind of faced with the realisation that somebody is actually going to die. And yeah. you don't understand all the... Oh, you know, all the ramifications that that brings if they want to die at home. Yeah, it's a very personal thing, isn't it? And um, so then we had Lee Joshak, who was uh, talking about freedom funerals and what they do and what the various options there are. And I thought that was really enlightening because there was so, so much stuff there I didn't know, didn't, never really thought about. You no, know. absolutely. And, you know, again, with my dad, we never even considered doing something alternative rather than just going down the traditional route. It was almost like that's the default that you go to, rather than thinking about what other options there might be. And I think, didn't he do it for a pet as well? Did yes, you he did, yeah. I think it was a hamster that died and he did it for free. He just mm. did, made a little coffin and did the whole nine yards with the car and all that sort of thing for free. I mean, you know, yeah. what a great guy. Absolutely. That, I mean, that's just really impressive and just, just shows that um, in, in that moment when you need people... Quite often they step up and they help you. Yeah. If you're there, you know. And then, of course, we had Dr. Karen Chumley talking about hospices. And as a former child nurse, I should know about hospices. You would have thought. But I didn't. And I don't. Think, I think there's lots of nurses out there, lots of doctors, who just don't really get what a hospice does and what it's there for. No, I think ultimately you think that the option options are very limited in terms of, you know, how you die and where you die. <clears throat> it's either hospital which is, you think is the more traditional route, but actually Dad, as you know, did not want to go to hospital. Yeah. So, uh, and he was probably too poorly to have gone to a hospice, I think. I'm not sure yeah. whether he would have appreciated that either, but I think he certainly would have benefited from the um, the VW uh, St Helena's where they, they go in and they actually help patients and yeah. their families in their home. And I think my mum would have really, um, that would have really helped her yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned um, the VW at St Helena, the virtual ward. So it's like hospice at home. Um, and uh, just got to make clear that this is this whole podcast is not about St Helena, but it's really handy having them sitting on the doorstep so I yep. can just draw from their experiences and their knowledge, which is cool. And we wouldn't have known anything about them, actually. No. Until, you know, until you started working for them, we realised that that's what they did. It's not... I don't think it's really widely known that that can happen. No. I mean, even when we talked to our friend uh, about who already was working there, we didn't really kind of quite get it, really, because, yeah, the hospice wasn't, you know, it's not widely known. Amazingly, they do an incredible amount of advertising and and um, fundraising and, and et cetera. But uh, it's always worth trying to get the word out for what hospices can actually do. Um so on that note, we've got we've been through some some of the technical stuff, and I think it's now time to bring it home. So that I, my next interview is with Di Renders, uh, who lost her husband Roger 
uh, about a year ago. And um, she's going to, you know, tell her story about how that was for her. Mm. Yeah, obviously, it's a very personal experience, isn't it? Losing somebody that close to you. Uh, and everybody's experience is different. And actually, it, it just makes, gives you more understanding, having been through it, then you can kind of identify with other people that experience it and how their experience might be different to yours. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit rough for us, I think, for this beginning of this year, losing your dad and losing my sister straight off the bat. You know, that was uh, that was a bit tricky. But let's have a listen to Di, who's a lovely lady, and you're going to really enjoy her story. So, hello, Di. Um, thank you very much for coming along to talk about your personal journey with uh, Roger. Uh, so he died at home after a relatively short illness last year. But before we get to that bit, how did you meet? And what did that look like? Did he schmoozle you? Was it love at first sight? Tell us a bit about that time, at first encounter. Um, we met in a supermarket of all places. And I think it was love at first sight for me. Uh, but he was the one that made the first move. Oh, I see. Very charming. Always a charm, I bless him. Yeah. But, yeah, we we just were meant to be. We were compatible, and I believe that we were destined to be together. Yeah. So you got together just uh, after a short um, romance, shall we say? Mm, yeah, I guess so, yeah. But during that time, something fairly terrible happened for you. Yeah, um, I lost my son, Gary, who was 17. He was in a car accident. Um, uh, Helicoptered to Addenbrooke's Hospital, um, which he managed to hang on for two days and then... And then gone. Yeah, he gave up. But he was so injured that he wouldn't have been able to have a normal life anyway so in a way it's a blessing and I had Roger at the time he was the only thing that would get me through right because that must have just been unbelievably painful it was it was if I hadn't have got had Roger with by my side um I wouldn't be here today right okay absolutely oh yeah so uh when did Roger get his diagnosis Right, in 2017, he had a, like a persistent cough and we went to the doctors and he sent him to a specialist, ear, nose and throat. And we went there and the guy put a camera down and said, no, nope, can't see anything. He said, but while I'm here, I don't normally do this, but I'll take an x-ray. And then two days later, we got called back saying, can you come back now? You know, something's shown up. And he wasn't qualified enough to tell tell us what it was, but little nodules on his lungs. Yeah. Um, so he was referred on the cancer pathway two week. And basically, the consultant turned around and said, you've got lung cancer. Was it that abrupt? Yes. So not much in the way of bedside manner there? No, no. In couch or um, anything? So she said, right, we'll send you to Patworth for an, a biopsy straight away. And he went to... Um, Patworth had the biopsy and then later on that day got a phone call saying it, good news it's not lung yeah, cancer okay. but we think it's something called vasculitis now he'd been under some, a consultant at Colchester Hospital for vasculitis or it was linked to his arthritis um, but the consultant got so annoyed that 
Colchester Hospital were taking so long to get any tests or anything done, he phoned and said, would you mind me sending you to Addenbrooke's? Um, okay. Which was great because Addenbrooke's are one of the leading hospitals in vasculitis. So, yeah, we went there. Everything was fine until um, one day in 2018, he was sat there and all of a sudden he couldn't breathe. Right. Um, Scary. Yeah. So I took him down to the surgery and got met with, you need an ambulance, but I'm going home now, so you'll have to do it yourself, which I just put him in the car and thought, right, take him straight there. Yeah. Um, he spent two days in Colchester Hospital, but because they didn't know what they were dealing with, and we told them he was under Addenbrooke's, they, Addenbrooke's transferred him to there, yeah. which was good because if he hadn't, they saved his life basically. Right. Because he'd had a pulmonary embolism in his lungs ah. and total respiratory failure. Okay. So he was in Addenbrooke's five weeks in intensive care and then two weeks on the ward. Right. Now, I knew Roger briefly. Yep. He had a brilliant sense of humour. He did. Is that something that helped get you both through that particular time? Absolutely, because he would just laugh about everything. Yeah. He would say, right, well, I better do this now in case I die tomorrow. <laughs> um, that was his way of dealing with it. He His sense of humour was amazing. Um, but I think you needed that, otherwise you would just be... Totally, totally miserable all the way through. Yeah. I mean, it is something... Did you actually talk about what was going to happen at the end of life? Or did he just not want to face that? At, not at that time. Not at that time. Because he was deter- determined to get himself well. Yeah. Which he really did. He weaned himself off the oxygen. Yeah. Um, he managed to live, I wouldn't say a normal life, because he, he did get out of breath if, if it was... Um, cold or windy right um but he did really really well until the beginning of last year okay and because the treatment for vasculitis is chemotherapy based that meant his immune system was nothing he picked up everything going and in february last year was the start of many many infections and in the end his body just couldn't 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 cope no no so there came a time where uh, the hospice got involved or hospice care got involved. Yeah, um, I think it was the GP okay. that um, told me about it um, because Roger was a I'm not being in hospital kind of guy. Yeah. Um, if anything's going to happen, I want it at home. Um, and Debbie came round to meet him and... Debbie Debbie Vincent? Yes, Debbie yeah. Vincent from the hospice. Yes, um, and she arranged carers to come in the next day right and it was only supposed to be for four weeks but yeah. somehow it extended to four months oh uh, yeah yeah it did go on a bit didn't it well yeah like did roger that <laughs> which was nice yeah yeah right. but um <clears throat> debbie told me later that when she'd seen him she didn't expect him to last the week no because he was in a very bad yeah, way he was he was in a really bad way and um but he kind of rallied a little bit. He did. He did really, really well. Um, but one of the problems with catching infections was um, he used to get C. diff a lot. Okay, so C. diff? C- yeah, C. diff is like um, an infection of the the stomach and the bowel. Okay, right. And 
basically he lost his appetite yeah and he just dramatically lost weight he was living on um build up drinks mostly yeah i remember when i first came to him it was, it yeah. was just on i can't remember not 40 said the other one yeah 40 40 yeah. 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 yeah okay um so it must be strange to have had people coming into the house uh and and helping him to wash and do well, personal care he was a very independent person. Yeah. And at first he he was really against it. He kept saying, you can tell them not come t- today. I'm all right. I don't need them. But what I tried to explain to him was that I needed the carers as much as he needed yeah. them. Because yeah. they were my support. Yeah. And God did they support me. <laughs> I wouldn't have got through it without you all. Oh, they're a good bunch, aren't they? They're Bless them. amazing. So... Um, then there came the time when the profiling bed came in. Yeah. So he'd got to a point where he couldn't really stand so well? well yeah, he, he was having trouble getting from the bedroom yeah. through to the bathroom or through to the lounge. Um, yeah. But again, Roger being Roger, um, he used it for a couple of weeks and then said, no, I'm going to go back to my bed. I want to be normal. I want to do normal things. So he went back in our bed for about maybe two or three weeks. Yeah. But then it was he was getting so weak that he just couldn't manage the to, to walk around. Right. So this was pre the pub visit, was it? Yes, yes, it was so, pre the pub visit. So this was when uh Junie and I were able to get just about get Roger into the car and get him down the pub for a for a Well pub. yeah, it, it took a while, didn't it? Yeah. But um he enjoyed that so much. That's all he wanted to do. Yeah. And he fell nice. asleep, bless him. And <laughs> it wiped him out for the next three days. Hey, yeah. But, he, you know, I'm so grateful to you for doing Oh, no, no, don't be grateful. But, um, but you know, it was lovely to see him, you know, in that environment and to get the photo and a yep. big old smile on his face. Absolutely. That was, that was amazing. But then he started to become more and more unresponsive. So um, being asleep more often yep. than awake... And eventually he just didn't wake up, and um, you were on your own for that. Yes, right? yeah. yeah, I was, yeah. Um, what did that look like? It was strange, because he was on the, the um, syringe driver at that time, Yeah. Um, which basically means, you know, it's coming to an end. And the district nurse had just been in to change the meds in the driver. Yeah. Um, she just left, and I just knew... I just yeah. I sat and held his hand, and he just gave three last gulps of breath. Yeah, and then nothing. But he had been on the syringe driver for a while, hadn't he? Uh, about ten, ten to fourteen days. Ten to I fourteen think. days, yeah. Yeah. and that's the thing that regulates the medication, yeah. so that he can't swallow. But he wasn't sort of responsive much in the last week. Right, he slept a lot. Yeah, a real lot. Yeah, and I remember when that day when it did happen. That uh, probably, I don't know how many carers turned up. And, and four and carers and Becky, yeah. the nurse, and then friends and everybody just yeah. to, you know. The house was just humming with activity. It was reason. so nice because it, mean, it meant to me that Roger touched everyone's hearts. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was a lovely fella. He was. Um, so after Roger died... Um, you must have been on your own for long periods of time. That must have been really hard because you'd been joined at the hip. Yeah. 
And you, for yeah. years and years yeah. married. We, we, um, we did everything together, so being on my own was very, very strange. How was that first couple of weeks? Awful. Awful. Yeah. Or I think I cried most of it. Yeah. Um, it's just the loneliness. I was, I was so used to being there for him 24-7, yeah. um, and then it goes to nothing, and you just feel a bit helpless and lost. And I guess having people coming in twice a day and yeah. neighbours and everything, and uh, and then it just, as you say, just stops. Yeah, and uh, I honestly, looking back now, don't know how I got through it. No. I really don't. It's, an, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, for me, when I lost my mother, I've looked after her for a long time. Uh, and here, now, here we are 20 years later, I can't remember organising the funeral. I can't remember the days after. I can't remember any of it. It's just a big old blank, you know. I do remember saying to me, sitting in bed and saying, because you couldn't use a hand, roll me a fag, there's a deer. Because uh, that was an enduring memory. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so it's funny the things that we do remember, you know, years later... Um, but so, you know, things have progressed and the funeral happened. Well, there wasn't a funeral because yeah, he didn't. No, it, was a bit, it, well, it wasn't a funeral, was it? It was no. a bit down the pub, I seem to recall. Was well, it no, meal? we haven't done that yet either. Oh, uh, yeah. His instructions were no funeral but a party at the pub. Okay. Um, and I haven't felt ready to do that yet. Okay. Yeah. So that's going to be a tricky one sometime. It will be sometime, yes, but, you know, he'll tell me when the time's right. He's still watching over me. You still talk to him, don't you? Oh, absolutely, every day. <laughs> every day. Um, uh, I guess you, because it was such a hard thing, you got some help, some counselling? Yeah, I mean, the hospice have been there since day one and they're still there if I need them now. Yeah. I had some counselling at the hospice um, but at the time, because it was relatively shortly after his death, they didn't think it would do that much good. Um, and looking back, I can see that now. Um, I did have some counselling through work um, recently, and that has really, really helped. Okay. Um, the hospice did contact me again and say, you know, you can have some more sessions, but at that at the time, I don't think I was in the right frame of mind to bring it all up again. Right, yeah. I, I got through what I got through with the counselling and I was in a better place than I was, so I didn't want to bring it all back up again. Yeah. But I know in the future, if I need them, they'll be there. Yeah, they will, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, I, mean, I know you're working now. Um, yeah. And that helps fill some time and you've got a mad cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who was a kitten when we first yeah, met? Yeah, we we got him the day that the carers started. Yeah. Um. So he's grown up with you lot as well. <laughs> um. But work, yeah, work is a distraction. Yeah. And I've got amazing neighbours and friends who keep me busy. Yeah. And I've also, um, well, I was supposed to do a, a skydive on Saturday, but they postponed Ooh. because of the weather. <laughs> hey. um, so it's now going ahead in a couple of weeks' time, and that's to raise money for the hospice. Hey, I couldn't throw myself off a shelf, let alone out of an aeroplane. I think that's just crazy. But, you know, that's I, I'm looking forward to you telling me all about that. That would be fine sometime. Yeah, um, 30th of July I'm doing it now. 30th of July. Weather permitting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and... Going forward, um, what's your plans? Going forwards, 
I've got this vision in my head that I am going to work in some way with right. the hospice. You want to do that? I do. Hmm. I don't know which way yet, but it's don't, there. Don't do our jobs too much driving. <laughs> it's just nuts out there. <laughs> but there we go. Well, listen, it's been lovely talking to you again, Di. And uh, thanks very much for sharing your story with us. You're and um, yeah, and a big hello to Rog, wherever you are, mate. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Lovely lady, and uh, I'm sure many of you here will identify with lots of what Di has been through. Um, so next week, we're, I'm looking to talk to Katie Billimore about a particular department in St. Helena, which is called Single Point. Um, Single Point is just a fascinating place to me because it is that it, it is what it says on the tin. It is one place where you can ring if you're a relative and you're worried about your uh, your patient, your your um, loved one, uh, as they're going through these stages, they're the ones that will um, get a doctor out to you or get a well, I think get a come out themselves if it's a nurse related issue, uh, and they're there to give just brilliant advice. It's um, a call centre like no other. So I look forward to that. And here we are, the end of four um, podcasts so far and many more to come. See you next week.